Pianist Emmanuel Axe and cellist Yo-Yo Ma have been friends for more than 50 years, and they've been performing together for just as long. They're coming kind of full circle on their new recording, which is called Amid Tears and Sorrow. They're doing that by recording the Beethoven sonatas again. They first recorded these cello sonatas back in the early 80s. Forty years ago, they wrapped it up, and it helped them earn one of their many Grammy Awards. I recently caught up with Emmanuel Axe to talk about their new recording, Amid Tears and Sorrow. That's what's featured this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Emmanuel, I just want to start off by asking you about this past year. It's been a challenging one, especially for artists and musicians who really rely on being in front of an audience. How has it been for you? What's it been like this past year? Well, obviously, it's been an incredible change uh, for for most of us. Uh, I, you know, I, I've been used to traveling and, and seeing people and playing for about 40 years now. And that came to a complete stop. So the one silver lining for me was that I didn't have to get nervous every three days before a concert uh, because I tend to get nervous. <laughs> so that was kind of a relief. And of course, it was wonderful to stay home with my wife a little bit. Uh, that was That was also different. The fact is, I think people my age were probably very, very lucky. You know, I'm 72 now. If I'm not retired, I probably should be. <laughs> but what's what's been awful is for people much younger than me who are starting their careers and doing so well, and then that comes to a complete stop. And even worse, for people who, for example, were musicians in a, a Broadway play like The Lion King or Hamilton where the orchestra had a, a job, you know, for the next three years coming up, and all of a sudden, no income, no work, nothing. And I don't need to mention all of the people that have been sick and have had much worse issues than financial issues. So it's been a nightmare. The whole year has been a nightmare. So I, I would say certainly my family has been one of the lucky ones. I know that you have played not only to larger audiences, but also for more uh, intimate audiences, like for people in the hospital. Is that yes. something that you had the opportunity to do over this past year as well or no? Absolutely. There are a number of people, there are a number of doctors who are also musicians and musicians who are interested in medicine, all of whom, as soon as this all happened, they started to think, how can we help? And there's a group in, in Houston at the Methodist Hospital. There's a, a whole group in New York that was at looking for musicians to just play some music over, over the internet for ICU patients, for, for people who just needed a little bit of relief. And of course, I was very happy to volunteer and to do that. You know, you just sort of schedule a time and play over an iPhone for an hour or two for people in, in the ICU so they could have a little bit of, of music and relief. I've done 
a lot of Zoom stuff, uh, a lot of uh, short messages to people, things for Carnegie Hall, you know, hosting a couple of programs around uh, wonderful pianists that I love and, and that we were able to disseminate a little bit. Yo-Yo and I actually, back in the fall, were able to do some concerts on the back of a truck. Uh, there was a flatbed truck that that the piano mover here had, and he had this idea of putting a little clavinova on the back of that, and Yo-Yo has a fiberglass cello with a speaker, and the two of us would be on the back of this flatbed truck, and we did 20-minute concerts in various places in parking lots for nurses, for teachers, for uh, UPS delivery people, you know, and I hope that brought them a little pleasure. So that's what I've been doing and uh, practicing a lot, mainly because I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I didn't practice. I have no life. So that's what I do. (laughs) I'm wondering, first of all, I'm wondering, what did you play at these smaller, more intimate settings when you were looking for the music to comfort people? Oh, basically, I would just take some music, put it on the stand, stuff that I had played before, you know, some Schubert, some Chopin, uh, whatever came to mind, really, some Beethoven slow movements. Uh, I don't think people were very particular about, you know, the exact pieces. There, There may have been a couple of people that wanted specific things, but I think they were just happy to listen to to some music. I was just curious if any music resonated with you in particular during that time that you thought would really be beneficial. Oh gosh, it's it's hard to say. You know, it's all I I, I love so much music, and and I think probably the the intimate and slower stuff was more more to I, I hope more comforting to people. You know, you probably wouldn't play a Hungarian Rhapsody of Liszt, you know, uh, but things like Brahms intermezzos, you know, some some Bach, uh, Schubert is always wonderful, Beethoven slow movements, uh, a lot of a lot of stuff. You mentioned having nerves before a traditional concert. I'm curious, did you a experience those same nerves in these other settings, and or did they perhaps? help calm your nerves for you moving forward for future concerts? Well, I don't know about the future, but certainly this kind of situation, you don't really worry about how you perform. You know, you, it's it's much more important to just deliver some music and, uh, you know, with, with feeling and, and you don't, you don't worry about playing accurately or anything like that. I think people would, not notice or certainly forgive me for wrong notes and things like that. Uh, I don't know how that's going to affect, you know, performing again. I've done, I've done a few things. I've done some, some benefit concerts the last uh, few months, uh, something in South Dakota, something in Providence. It's been nice to play for live people, (laughs) But it's still a little bit, a little bit strange, and and it's it's hard to know what that'll be like. I'm I'm sure I'll go right back to being freaked out. 
<laughs> well, I it's kind of amazing. And perhaps for people who are just starting their career as a solo artist, maybe that's almost a relief to hear that someone as seasoned as yourself and as accomplished as yourself still gets nervous. I mean, how do you calm those nerves in, in a more traditional setting? Uh, I think you just learn to live with it, kind of. Uh, it's it's something I'm I'm used to dealing with, and I don't know that I don't know that I have a solution. I, I think it depends entirely on your personality and the way you grew up. Uh, I, I know I know plenty of young people who are extremely accomplished, extremely gifted. They don't get so nervous, and that's wonderful. <laughs> that would be great. I wish I could steal that from them, but I. Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's uh, it's it's you. It's not uh, it's not a, a there's no panacea, unfortunately. Another thing that you have accomplished this past year is creating a new recording with your longtime friend and collaborator, Yo-Yo Ma. It's called Hope Amid Tears. And before we dive into the recording itself, I want to talk about you and Yo-Yo Ma as friends and music collaborators. How did the two of you discover that you had this great connection as friends and as collaborators? Uh, I think we, you know, we met very early on. Yo-Yo is a little younger than me. And, and I met him, I think, when I was, I was 19 or, or 19 and a half, something like that. And he was 15. And already one of the supreme cellists of, of the century. You know, he was just incredible. Uh, and we somehow hit it off. We we did we did a couple of, of smaller things together. You know, his his father was also a musician, and and he he had an organization called the Children's Orchestra Society, and we did a couple of of little benefit concerts for that. We just hit it off. I, I don't know. I guess we had the same sense of humor. We like being together. We like talking about everything, not not just music. And it just kept it just kept going. We wound up with the same management after a while, and we asked them to put us together for a couple of of trips, you know, just uh, which was in those days kind of kind of rare, actually, to have two people who were doing their own solo performances uh, to have to have a, a short tour together was not such a common thing. And I think we're very proud of the fact that that we kind of were were pioneers in that, you know, in the in the idea of two people maybe looking for kind of equality rather than one being an accompanist to the other. Uh, I think that's uh, that happens so much now, and and you don't you don't see very much the situation of, of a string player with an accompanist, you know, that it's, it's really very much a, a partnership. Uh, and, and I think we, we were slightly pioneers in that and that makes us very proud. Yeah. Um, I know talking to young people who are in conservatories these days, I mean, if you say accompanist, that does not go over well anymore. Yeah. Now it's collaborator. You are always. Well, that's a, that, although that of course is, is the one I really don't like. Because collaborator always sounds like some kind of 
spy in a in a in a movie, you know, some kind of some kind of World War II movie where well, the guy's a collaborator, you know, that oh, makes me sure. nervous. Oh, sure. I hadn't thought of that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, now we it's, have to rethink that. Yeah, I'm just a <laughs> devotee of, of old movies, and that's probably why it has not no real connection. But collaborative artist is very nice. Uh just saying, you know, I play the piano is absolutely fine. <laughs> I think that's probably useful. And uh, you know, Yo-Yo and I have done this for gosh, it's going on, it's going on 50 years. It's a very long time. It's uh it's it, it's one of one of the privileges of my life has been doing this with Yo-Yo. Uh, I would be a very different person and very different musician and probably a much lesser one in both cases without without that friendship. So uh, I'm very lucky. I'm one of the luckiest people. I know that the two of you each have a very sharp sense of humor. You referred to that. I'm curious how that might play into you making music together, either in rehearsal or in a live performance. And was there ever a situation where it helped to really enhance your live performance? <laughs> maybe things were going, you know, a, a little bit different yeah. than you had planned, maybe, or something. Yeah, I don't. Well, to be honest, uh, I don't know that we have. Uh, we, we always do something different from what we've planned. Uh, one of the great things about being together for so long is that there are so many possibilities in any one performance. Uh, we've done the Beethoven sonatas, which we've recorded. We've played them for 45 years. So when we rehearse now for concerts, we don't we don't really talk much. We play and play and play, and it comes out a little different every time. And that's what happens on stage too. Every every night is a different way of doing it, and you can sense from the other person what that person is going to do. It's a kind of unspoken communication, and I think that's that's the best part of playing with with a partner that you love. You know that that this unspoken communication this not deciding i'm going to slow down here or i'm going to speed up here it just happens <laughs> but as far as uh, humor yes i i think we when we do get together to rehearse it's it's nice to have things to laugh at and i think we laugh at pretty much everything to be honest well that certainly lightens the you know, the whole atmosphere, I would imagine, and and may, probably creates a, a more open music-making environment, I would think. Well, I, I hope so. I, I hope, you know, Yo-Yo is one of the great communicators from stage to audience, I think. And I've learned so much from him in, in that aspect of things. Just the way he interacts with an audience, both in a in an unspoken way, but also in a in a way that he thinks about. You know the way he, the way he bows, the way he talks, the way he opens to people. You know, it's it's all. He's a he's a real role model for me in that sense. He's a fantastic stage animal, you could say. Yeah, and so charming on stage, as you said. Yes, yes. 
the two of you. I, have, I find them charming too. <laughs> in general, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was funny. This is kind of an aside, but when I spoke with him uh, about a month or so ago, what struck me was how, as we started the conversation, he was basically interviewing me. Mm. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. Yeah. One of <laughs> I got to turn this of, around. One of the things that's, that, that's always difficult at, at dinner with him is he'll say, now, look, you know what I want to ask you? What are the three things that are the most important things in life for the next two years for you? And this is not really dinner conversation. You know, but he tends to ask that kind of question. And, and then you're kind of, you know, do you answer what's important to me is to have spaghetti al pesto every three days? Or do you say, well, I want the, you know, the future of, uh, of the earth to be better? I don't know. <laughs> but it's at least a starting point. And I know what you mean about interviewing the other person. Well, the two of you have recorded dozens of albums together, and one of the first recordings you made together was Beethoven's Cello Sonatas in 1987, and it earned you... Yeah, in in fact, we started doing them. It's a three-record set in each case because they're all the sonatas, and the first record of those that came out was in 1981, 40 years ago. Oh, wow. So So then you completed it in 1987? Yeah, we did one in in 81, one in 84, and one in 87. Well, I know one, at least one of those recordings is, now you'll correct me on this, you've won five Grammy Awards, at least one of those won a Grammy. Is that right? I think think so. I I have, I'm not so, I'm not so up on that, but I know, (laughs) I know we recorded them in, in different years and and now, you know, 40 years later, we thought we don't really have that much time to waste. We better do them now before we get sick. <laughs> so, Well, and yes, indeed, you decided to record them again during the pandemic and they appear on this new recording. Why was it important to do them again right now? Well, I, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that that we we that we changed a lot of little things in the way we play them we've we've been playing them all the all the time for all this time and every time we get together and do them there are little changes there are little little things that we may have learned from other pieces that we've worked on from other from conductors that we've worked with you know from just from the rest of our life that the change little things in the performance of these pieces. And I think ultimately maybe they add up to a big change. To be honest, we were at least, I, I think Yo-Yo felt the same way. We were afraid to listen to those early recordings because if they were really good, <laughs> then we would think, well, we shouldn't really, we probably can't do as well. And if they were really bad, uh, we'd be very disappointed and unhappy. So we thought better we shouldn't listen. We should just do them again and not worry about it. And so with that's age we, comes wisdom. <laughs> I, I we hope so. Well, you know, wisdom is the only thing we have left. <laughs> so we hope for the best. It's interesting because there's so many things you've said that really feels like the two of you have come full circle. I mean, from the intimate performances that you did this past year, from re-recording these, do mm. you feel like that as well? I, I think that's that's what happens maybe. Uh, in In a way, because we've 
we've done so many other things separately. You know, Yo-Yo has done everything from going to the Kalahari Desert to founding the Silk Road Ensemble to playing with Edgar Meyer and doing Goat Rodeo and so forth. Uh, I've been much more streamlined, but I go off and play concertos with various conductors, you know, and learn some new music. And every time we come back together, um, every year we do something, we probably bring other experiences that we've had to our meeting. And I think in that sense, we come to a little bit of a circle each time because it's like, oh, hi, great to see you again. Let's do this piece again, except it's not the same piece. You know, it's the old story about not stepping into the same river twice because the river has flowed on. And I think that's what happens when you, when you revisit masterpieces like this. You have said that when we look to music to give us hope for the future, to believe we can survive and to do good, invariably we turn to Beethoven's music. Why yeah. is that? Well, I think for, first of all, somehow to me, what, what, what you hear is an incredible hope for brotherhood, for positivity, for the future of man, I suppose. I, it's, it's no accident that the text he chose for the finale of the Ninth Symphony has the words, all men will be brothers. I think he, he really felt that the future of man can be great. And what's, what's especially touching about that is that he himself had a life that was more difficult than, than almost any I can think of for any composer. I, this, is a, this is a great, great musician and performer who suddenly started to lose his hearing. It's, it's unimaginable what that means to a musician to lose your greatest faculty. No, that you're, you're, losing, you're losing your ability to deal with exactly what your life is. And he did not have much of a personal life. He had very bad luck with relationships both family relationships and romantic relationships. In fact, he probably didn't have a romantic relationship worth the name. And yet, when you listen to the music, there's there's nobody more more positive, hopeful, even even the anger. And the tragedy is somehow part of humanity that will get better. And that that to me is is what I find so astonishing and so so hopeful in, in a time like this. You know, I love I love Brahms. I, I love Chopin. I love Mozart. There are so many composers I love. 
But if I want to feel, if I need a lift, if I want to feel good, I'll listen to the Beethoven Seventh Symphony. And, and I think that's, that's true for, for most of us. So which sonata would you listen to first to feel good? To feel good, probably sonata number three. And that's the one where the title of, of this three record set actually is connected to that sonata because he had a supporter named Gleichenstein and, and he dedicated this particular piece to him. And he sent him a copy of the piece, a, a printed, you know, the, the first version. And he wrote on it, amid tears and sorrow, there's a Latin quote, forgive me, my, my Latin is hopeless, but it's amid tears and sorrow. And so he was living through the bombardment of Vienna by Napoleon. He was living through his hearing getting worse and worse and worse. He was having major family issues about his nephew and I, I think had just nixed any romantic relationship that he was supposed to have with a particular person, maybe the immortal beloved. So that probably refers to that, to, to the time he was going through. And yet the piece, I mean, there is nothing more beautiful, generous, positive, open than this piece. So I, I guess that's the piece I would turn to first. Of course, all the others are in, in their own way, amazing, brilliant, exciting. The cello and the piano are treated as equals in this Sonata Number no. 3. And as such, it becomes the first true piece of chamber music can you talk more about that dialogue and the technique that Beethoven uses, that tension and the arrival? The idea of tension and arrival is, is something that he very much was, was interested in putting out there in a very straightforward way. So if you look at this piece, you always come to a pause. And the pause is on what we would call the dominant. but it's a kind of expectation of what's coming next. And he uses that over and over in this piece until the very end. And you finally, after the stop, instead of going on to something new, he finally resolves it. It's like, in a conversation. Are you really gonna do that? Well, let me think, let me think, let me think, let me do something else, let me think. Are you really gonna do that? Not sure, I'm gonna go on to something else. Are you really gonna do that? And like five, seven times later, it's just, yes. And even there, <laughs> the, the piano gets to ask, are you sure? And he says, yes. I'm sure. 
that's the first movement. There's a, there's a very interesting work by Louis Lockwood, one of the great Beethoven scholars, where he found the autograph of the first movement of this sonata with many changes that Beethoven made. And all the changes don't really have to do with which notes you play. You know, it's, it's not that he's changing the notes or the tunes, but he's changing which instrument does what. And all of it seemed to be designed to make the cello actually more prominent than it used to be. Because, of course, Beethoven was a very great pianist. That was his claim to fame as a young man. And so that's the instrument he naturally was, was interested in, in, in making difficult and promoting and so forth. All the piano parts for all these pieces are outrageously hard and full of notes. But even from the first sonata, you can see that he wants, he wants the cello to be not only a kind of accompaniment or obligato or, or a side, a side man, you know, but, but really part of the dialogue. Uh, and certainly in this piece, the cello starts the piece by, by itself, which is very unusual. Probably the first time that was ever done for a cello. Uh, he did it once before in the, uh, in the Kreutzer Sonata for violin and piano. Same kind of thing. But for the cello, unprecedented. You know, the cello uh, used to be really play, playing the bass line. And, and now it starts to play a lot of the tunes. <laughs> and that's true right from the first sonata. I want to talk about the two early sonatas, the sonata in F and the sonata in G minor. They were written for two French brothers. Is that right? Yes. They were both big cellists of the time, and, and they would play very difficult virtuoso music. And the, the person that he dedicated the pieces to, the one who paid for them, was King Frederick Wilhelm II in Berlin, and he was an amateur cellist, but apparently quite good. And I always like, Yo-Yo doesn't think this is a funny pun, but I do, because he got, he got for the two pieces, in addition to a fee, I think he got a gold snuff box from the king. And he was very proud of this snuff box. He wrote to his, I think he wrote to his family, to his father maybe, that he got this snuff box. It's a real expensive one. And I always thought it was very funny because I think this music is nothing to sneeze at. But well, thank you for laughing, but that's fine. Anyway, uh, besides the fact that the cello is is much more prominent than it would normally have been in a big piano sonata, he also innovates in a different way. He writes these enormous first movements with a huge, a huge adagio beginning. bigger than I think than, than Haydn ever, ever attempted. And then a last movement, which lasts four minutes. The first movement is 16 minutes long, and then people applaud and so forth. And then you play this, this thing afterwards, which is light and, and airy and fun. It's almost as though the last movement of each sonata is, I, I said to Yo-Yo, this is, we might as well be playing an encore. <laughs> 
One final question is about the variations. There are also three sets of variations for cello and piano on this recording. Why was it important to include these on this collection of Hope Amid Tears? Well, just because it, it makes for a complete set. And I think composers write variations in a way to exhibit their abilities. Beethoven wrote the best variations. They're also sublimely inventive. And, and uh, if you're going to play Beethoven, you can't leave them out. <laughs> so <laughs> that's enough of a reason. Amid Tears and Sorrow, pianist Emmanuel Axe with his lifelong friend and chamber partner, cellist Yo-Yo Ma. If you're enjoying new classical tracks, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it, help spread the word, and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Thank you to Valerie Kaler, our producer for New Classical Tracks. And since you're clearly a music fan, let me tell you about another podcast you'll enjoy. It's the Piano Puzzler Podcast, where every week Fred Child invites composer Bruce Adolph into the studio to play one of his brilliant musical mind games. Bruce takes a familiar tune and disguises it in the style of a classical composer. And then a contestant calls in to try to solve the riddle. It's a lot of fun. If you're up for the challenge, subscribe to The Piano Puzzler wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Mm-hmm.